I'm Rachel. Hello, I'm married to, this is really loud, I'm married to Jacques, who's over there, and we have two children. We've been around here for a while. We met here, actually, at this church, and um, we just stick around because we love it. So, I'm going to get going, get stuck straight in with um, a question for you before, um, to think about. The question is... What do you need more than anything else right now? I asked my seven-year-old son this yesterday. What do, what do you need most at the moment, Caleb? And he gave me a, a glint in his eye. He gave me a wry smile and he said, Mom, what do I need or what do I want? I was like, oh, you're too clever for me. Um, he said, I guess I need some pajamas, <laughs> which he doesn't. But, of course, his head was racing with all sorts of things that he'd like to ask for. And I think most of the things in our first world country, most of the things that we would, most of our needs would fall into that category of, I'd I'd quite like, or it'd be more convenient for me if I had this, if we're truthful. But we have some sincere needs too. I went for a jog yesterday morning. I can't call it a run, but I ran past a man who was probably in his seventies and he commented, Oh, I wish I could do that. If I'd asked him his needs, I would guess that what he needed most would probably be health related or age related. I think for some of you, the thing you most need today is just to be here right now for whatever reason in this church. When I was pondering what to talk about this morning, there was one story about Jesus that caught my attention. And it's one of many where Jesus encountered someone with great need. Most of us haven't even seen, we certainly haven't experienced need to this extent, a pale in comparison. Um, so there's a picture on the screen of this, what we think the setting would have been like. It's a home in the town of Capernaum, which was a seaside town, fisher, fisherman's fisher village in Galilee in first century AD. They think the homes were a bit like this. They were simple. It would have a flat mud roof, small windows, dark and cool inside. But this house is full to bursting with people. They're spilling out onto the street And the people of the town have come because they've heard that Jesus has come home. And Jesus is inside the house and he's talking and he's teaching and they can't get enough people in. And he's talking about um, the kingdom of God. He's talking about holy living and salvation. He's been traveling around doing this. and He's been doing miracles as well. So it was actually quite a popular topic for discussion in those days. Um, But there's a mixed reception. The audience are, there are ordinary village folk, fishermen, just normal people. Uh, There would be some of the people Jesus grew up with probably there, there, his friends and his peers. And there were more critical listeners there as well. There were teachers and lawyers and people who'd studied the scriptures, people who had their own ideas about these kind of things. So in the middle of all of this, mud starts falling into the room on their heads of all these people. Great. And then light floods into the dark room because there are people on the roof digging a hole through the roof. And the hole becomes bigger and bigger, four faces peer in, and then 
You'll be familiar with the story. These four men lower a stretcher into the room. The people have to make a bit of space. And there is a man on the stretcher who cannot move. He's paralyzed. He has some kind of palsy. So the only movement that it will be some kind of incontrollable shaking. There won't be any, but like this at the moment. Um, (laughs) But not quite like that. Um, Some kind of symptom. But the man is helpless. His needs are very apparent. He can't move by himself. He actually needed four friends to get him in front of Jesus. Bring his reliance on other people for everything. As a consequence, he wouldn't have been able to work. So he can't earn money. He can't support a family. He would have been very poor. And this is a world that has no NHS, no health insurance, and no anti-discrimination laws, no um, disabled parking bays or special seats or things so he would have had no social standing and it was also a very religious community so his paralysis would have been perceived by community as a just punishment from God for his sin if he was born like that it was a punishment for his parents sin as well or instead it was a hereditary thing so the society that he was born into his community reckoned him to be spiritually bankrupt And under a lot of judgment, more than those who were able-bodied. So he was the lowest of the low. He was the bottom of the pile in wealth and social status. He had massive needs. But four men have heard about Jesus' miracles, and they believe he can fix things for these guys. So they've made an effort to overcome the obstacles and get him in front of Jesus. So let's pick up the story. It's in. I'm going to read from Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. And if you've got a Bible, have a look. It's on the screen. If you haven't, or look over someone's shoulder. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left. Not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. And then they lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. So I love the way Jesus always surprised his audience with a twist. Remember, Jesus has been teaching them about the kingdom of God, about salvation, and about holy living. So spontaneously, as Camilla talked about two weeks ago, he has an opportunity which he seizes to demonstrate the coming of the kingdom of God for this nobody who's been brought to him. 
everyone's hoping for a healing or a miracle. And that would have been pretty, a pretty fantastic demonstration of God's kingdom coming in my book. But the first thing Jesus says is, son, your sins are forgiven. So what's that about? Why did Jesus decide to tackle the sin issue first? In no other place do we hear Jesus make a direct link between someone's sickness and their sin. Only the opposite, in fact. So why here is putting a hole in the roof of someone's home so massive that it deserves special treatment? Or was there something we hadn't been told about this man? Perhaps he was a a known criminal? I don't think so, actually. I don't think the man was a known criminal. I think that what was actually happening is that Jesus saw the man's need. Not just the surface stuff, but in its complete totality. And in doing so, Jesus identified, identified a much deeper need than the man's physical troubles. He needs forgiveness. He needs God's forgiveness. Even this man, his need is so absurdly massive But more than anything else, he needs to be reconciled with God. Of course, as Jesus points out to his silent critics, it was equally impossible to heal the man as to forgive his sin. So Jesus then went on to orchestrate a complete restoration for the paralyzed man by healing his body. And by healing his body... Does that mean Jesus also proved that he had forgiven his sin? Of course, the healing would have allowed the man to enter the arena of work and of worship in his society for the first time ever. He wouldn't be a second-class citizen any longer. He could be a full member of Jewish society. He was reconciled to his community. And the physical healing was a definitive outward proof of the complete restoration of this man. So I think Jesus wanted the man and the crowds to know that God's restoration is holistic. By that I mean it's mind, body, soul and spirit. The whole caboodle and relational. My parents, a bit about me, my parents, well, a bit about my parents, actually, not me. My parents started a church in the mid-70s, along with a small group of others. Uh, None of them were trained. They did it alongside their day jobs. Um, They met in people's homes in the beginning and then started meeting in a school hall, a bit like the history of this church. But in this community, they just wanted to do what Jesus did. So miracles and healings were very much sought after in this community. One thing I remember as a child, if we had a cough, they'd get a shoebox, we'd cough into the shoebox, and then they'd throw the shoebox away in faith that the cough had be gone too. There was one family who were really great, they still are great friends and mentors of my parents, And as a rule, they had five children. They were a big family. And as a rule, they would pray instead of using medicine. Thankfully, God did a lot of healings. Um, And I was quite fortunate that my parents didn't take such an extreme position because that means I know what Calpol tastes like. I think that's quite an essential childhood experience, actually, (laughs) which I wasn't deprived of. But... 
as a result of growing up in this community, I did see a lot of miracles from a young age. And other than the shoebox thing, coughing, I remember when my brother was healed of grommets in his ears when he was four. My brother is a musician and he's a high school music teacher now. So, I mean, how's that for holistic healing? You'd never have dreamt of when, you were, when he was four. The other thing that I know about this environment was that it was a place where social outcasts were introduced to Jesus. The, the father of the same family who, you know, prayed instead of um, using Calpol for his children. He worked for Prison Fellowship, so which is a Christian outreach into prisons. So... A number of ex-convicts came into the church, actually stayed in people's homes as they came out of prison. So they would be welcomed into the family home and their Christian community. They'd give their lives to Jesus somewhere along the way. And that's just an amazing picture of a sinner, known sinner, a convicted sinner, reconciled with God and society and welcomed into the community of believers. They literally became part of the family. Um, if you want more stories, you can ask Karen, who would be Beatty in that. She was known then and now by that name, because that's what we called her, but it's her story too. So she's, she's, she's also a bit older than me, so uh, she remembers better. <laughs> so to come back to Mark 2, even as... Jesus lifted this man from the depths and restored him, mind, body, soul, and spirit. At the same time, we know Jesus is stirring things up a bit. He's challenging his audience, isn't he? He's challenging their thinking. The teachers of the law are not wrong that the man is a sinner. Their assumption that they're in a better position because they can move their arms and legs is kind of a bit awry. But He is a sinner, and they're not wrong that only God can forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. Their problem is that they can't entertain the possibility that Jesus is God, and therefore he can do what only God can do. For them, the only possibility is blasphemy. For Jesus to claim equality with God, that was deeply offensive to them. As I was preparing this, it struck me that actually our prevailing culture would probably also take, it does take offense at Jesus' message because our society acts like we're all gods. Our culture tells us that we're inherently good, that we can find all that we need inside ourselves. So you probably heard some of these things. If we just think positively enough, if we believe in ourselves sincerely enough, or if we can, have you heard of growth mindset? If we train ourselves with a growth mindset, we can do anything. If we breathe deeply and calmly enough, using whatever tools are out there. Or if we do enough good deeds, uh, the, uh, maybe random acts of kindness. This is a bit more of a modern term that is often used inside and outside the church. Uh, I have a friend who works for um, a humanist atheist organization that has set itself up because I don't really understand but they they do all sorts of things but without God for people they do lots of self-help courses and she told me last year she said oh 
you know, there's even a self-help course now available using cleaning as therapy. So I thought about offering my home as a workshop. I was like, come and see me. Anyway, in all of this, society is lying to us. It's wrong. None of this will ever be enough. There is one thing in life that we need more than anything else. We need to be reconciled to God. There's nothing we need more than this. But unfortunately, this is the one thing we cannot, we cannot attain by ourselves. Because in order for that relationship to be restored, each and every one of us needs his forgiveness. The Jewish audience in Capernaum knew this all too well. They were all trying to follow rules and rituals galore to get themselves right with God. It was never quite enough. And for all their cultural differences, their problem is actually the same as ours. Like the paralyzed man, we are born into a world that has chosen to walk its path apart from its creator. And in various ways, we all try and do life by ourselves without him. And fundamentally, that's sin. It's the very essence of sin, in fact. And it's, it's inherent in us. So I realize this is actually quite offensive. It's a hard message to tell people and a society who want to hear that actually they're okay. It's offensive to suggest that Jesus spoke truth, that he was actually equal with God, with all the power, authority, and person of Jesus himself. But that's what Jesus is claiming in this passage. And actually... With Jesus, the same conversation kept repeating itself. Jesus demonstrated over and over and over that, in fact, he was God and is God. He did miracles. He did healings. He knew people's hearts. He knew what they were thinking. He had, so he had prophetic insight. He had wisdom and knowledge. And he fulfilled prophecies that had been written hundreds of years earlier. The list goes on and on. But the crowd and the religious order of the day could not see the truth beyond the offense. It culminated on that night when the religious police arrested him. We read about it in Mark 14. The high priest challenged him. um, Are you the Christ, the son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man. I'll come back to that phrase. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. And on this admission, Jesus was handed over to the Roman oppressors. He was tortured, he was made a mockery of, and he was killed on a cross. But three days later, his tomb was empty. And he was seen alive again and again and again. We can believe the eyewitness accounts that are in the Bible. He is still alive today and he is still working today. And Jesus' words are truth for us today, just as they were for the paralyzed man and the crowds 2,000 years ago. And he still says to you and to me today, as he did to the paralyzed man, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven. Your slate is clean before God. So this... Is the ultimate reconciliation. 
not, it's the ultimate restoration. None of it is any less applicable to us because of the passage of time. Jesus still has all authority on earth to forgive sins. And he is still the son of man coming before God Almighty on our behalf, behalf as our representation. So this son of man, by the way, it's, it's, um, he's referring back to Jewish prophetic scripture. And the son of man was a figure who approached God's throne as the representation of God's people. He suffered and he was vindicated. So Jesus is claiming to be this son of man, our representation. The one who would suffer on our behalf and be vindicated and be given all authority to judge or indeed to forgive. So he still offers us forgiveness today. He offers us to be reconciled with God and restored to all he's called us to be. He still heals today. And he still restores today mind, body and spirit, the whole caboodle. Tom Tom Wright wrote about Mark 2. My last slide. Forgiveness is the most powerful thing in the world. But because it is so costly, we prefer to settle for second best. Jesus, already on his way to paying the full price, offered nothing less than the best. And that's why I love Jesus. Jesus.